This show is sponsored in part by the Mid-Ohio Con, October 4th and 5th, 2008, at the Greater Columbus Convention Center in Columbus, Ohio. For more information, visit midohiocon.com. I'm Matthew. I'm Rodrigo. And I'm Steven, and you're listening to the Major Spoilers Podcast, the podcast for pop culture and comic fans. The Major Spoilers Podcast covers news, reviews, and of course, spoilers, and we'll go into detail about the topics we discuss, so if you haven't read, listened to, or watched the items we talk about, you might want to come back later. This time around, Big Blue starts anew, senior citizens in skin-tight leather, Major Spoilers theme song, free swag in the bag, and more comics than you can reasonably shake a stick at. And yet I see you shaking that stick. Put it down. Plus, Matthew, 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 and some crap. Those other guys, Stan and Ronaldo or some such. All this and much, much more as the Major Spoilers podcast hits 37 in a row. The Major Spoilers podcast is on the air. Man. Thank you. I think we're going to need a new uh, intro host. (laughs) Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another week of Major Spoilers fun and and craziness. Thanks for downloading and listening in. i got a lot of cool things going on this week and some pretty bizarre stuff going on this week. Uh, One of the biggest things that I I just think is hysterical are all these casting rumors that are being thrown about about uh, the third Batman movie with Christopher Nolan. Now get this. This comes from the UK's Telegraph, which I guess is a daily newspaper. Maybe it's not. But they're claiming, are you ready for this? Christopher Nolan once or has already cast Cher as Catwoman <gasps> in the next movie. And Johnny Depp as the as the Riddler. Wow. All I could do was laugh when I heard that, that news. I think there's a misconception. I, I, I think somebody misunderstood when they said that Cher was being cast as a crazy cat lady. <laughs> <laughs> You know what? If we want to see Cher in leather, all we have to do is look at Cher. Yeah. <laughs> God. Well, you know, she she doesn't look that bad for somebody who's... 62 years old. 62 years old. <laughs> is she 62? I, th- I think that's... To the wiki! I think uh, that's how old she is. I thought she was 257 years old. <laughs> Let's go to the wiki so that we don't get sued. Please don't sue us, Cher. We love you. Honestly, if you're going to go... For somebody like that, you might as well go for Eartha Kitt and just have classic cat. Well, right? exactly. Or or uh, what was what's her name that was uh, made a big to do when Michelle Pfeiffer uh, was cast as Catwoman? Remember she ran into oh, Ju- Julie Ju- Newmar. Ju- Julie Newmar. <laughs> no, seriously. Oh, now if if this were reasonably true, and it, it's certainly not because they don't even have a script. Nolan hasn't even said he was going to do the third movie. If this were reasonably true. Here's how I would put Cher in the Catwoman role. It only works if you're doing The Dark Knight Returns, where it has uh, Selena Kyle as this old, trashy, in the twilight of her years character. That would be the only way it would work. Yeah, but then it wouldn't work because you wouldn't have an initial meeting between them. Well, Batman Returns. Or, uh, yeah, Batman Returns. With, uh, you know, with Danny DeVito and... Uh, Michelle Pfeiffer? Yeah, but that's not in the same continuity. Well, who says it has to be in continuity? Here's, this is the problem. Go ahead. Well, uh, here's here here's the problem. If you start bringing up that continuity, you shoot yourself in the face like they did with Superman. <laughs> well, speaking of Superman, this is <laughs> the other news. Shot 
face. Actually. This is the other news this week that I think is I think is actually tremendous news mm-hmm. is that Warner Brothers has indeed confirmed to the New York Times or I'm sorry, the Wall Street Journal, they said yes, Superman is getting a reboot a la The Incredible Hulk this past summer, where they're mm-hmm. throwing out Superman returns acting as though it never happened, so you don't have to worry about all those screwed-up continuity stalker Superman issues. Mm-hmm. On the downside, though, they're going to make it a darker film with a darker Superman. Mm-hmm. Superman's not dark. I think Apple Geeks had it had it best this week when they had that great cartoon about emo Superman. <laughs> yeah. And uh, dark He-Man and Batman saying, come on, guys, get out of my cave. <laughs> I just don't think Superman is not a dark character. He is not. He is not that. Uh, who, who who sings that song? Uh, da, 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 da. Five for fighting. Five for fighting. Superman is not that guy. I'm I mean, he's that. alone. He he is the crash test dummies guy, right? He is that Superman. He is somebody that is truly alone. But he's not this. <clears throat> Oh guys, I'm I'm so alone, and my planet blew up, and well, you know I mean, he's the shining light that we're all supposed to aspire to. Th- there is there is a a darkness to Superman, and uh, good writers have brought it out before. It is you know he's alone, he's the last survivor of his race, and he's basically given it all to save a bunch of people who you know who he sees something in. Right. Um. He's not you know he's not dark. He's not angsty he's sad yeah and bringing that out is not a problem but um i i, I gotta wonder it, here's here's the other thing if they're like this is going to be a darker film it might be okay if it's you know this is the world it kind of sucks superman comes in and cleans it up yeah if it's a darker world and he's that bright shining beacon of hope mm. then i think it does work really well yeah and some of my favorite superman stories are very dark stories Ooh, have Without you been reading the having a dark Superman? Have you been reading that Brainiac storyline in in what is it Action Comics? I have not, as we keep selling out of it on Wednesday, and I haven't been buying my comics till Friday. Lately. Really, you guys have been selling out? It's it's pretty good. I mean, it's kind of it kind of is a little messed up because of this bottled city of Candor issue that's going on. Mm-hmm. But otherwise, it's this little creepy, spooky, you know, Superman Brainiac story. Nice. It's interesting, but I mean, if you look at not meaning to sidetrack no, your no, no. issue. No, 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 go ahead, go I, ahead. If you look at, you know, some of my favorite stories, um, the the Black Mercy story for the man who has everything. Yes, excellent A very story. dark tale, wonderful Superman story. And, of course, I, now I'm showing my Alan Moore fanboy, but um, whatever happened to the man of tomorrow, yep. very dark story with an excellent Superman. Even Superman and the Legion from, what, three, four months ago is a dark story. But not necessarily a dark Superman. So, I mean, you can do dark and and vaguely emo without ruining the Superman character. I'm afraid what they're going to try and do is give us, you know, a a bulletproof Batman. No, I don't think that's going to happen because here's what they're going to do. And this is really cool. DC has finally said, hey, you know that other company that's kicking our ass every month? Let's Mm -hmm. be like them. And so from now on, they've cut back the number of big tentpole films that they're going to be releasing each year. And for the next several years, two of those big tentpole films are going to be DC title films, which means, and this is exactly what they're doing, just like Marvel's doing, they're releasing the individual hero movies first, Mm -hmm. Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, Flash, Green Lantern, etc., building up to the team movie, the Justice League, which was being rushed into production and was 
going to be in theaters next summer, which would have been a colossal flop. Mm -hmm. But now I think they finally sat down with DC and said, okay, you guys know what you're talking about. Lead us. And I think that's that's probably the best news of the whole week. Well, that and besides the fact that Virgin is closing its New York offices. <laughs> Virgin's not a bad company. It's not. But no, Shadowhunter is a bad It comic. is a bad comic. You know what the best title? There, actually, there were a couple of titles that I liked uh, from Virgin Comics. Uh, the big one being, um, uh, what the heck was it? Uh, uh, Dan Dare, mm-hmm. the Garth Ennis uh, Dan Dare seven-issue series. That was a really good series. If If you guys missed it, which apparently everyone did... It was very well done. I missed it. You missed it. It was a good. It was a good story. Before we get into the uh, main meat of our show this week and talk our rapid fire roundup of of comics, this is the month where most people go back to school, and I know most of our listeners are probably college age students. So today, I thought I'd bring in Dr. Peter Coogan. He's the director of the Institute for Comic Studies and co-founder and co-chair of the Comic Art Conference. He's also an instructor at Webster University in St. Louis. And today, we are going to talk about comics in the classroom. What's out there? Where can you find things? And uh, how can you make comics fun at, at college? So, Peter, welcome back to the show. Hi, Stephen. So, I guess one thing that a lot of people wonder, and, and there are some very good schools out there that are offering comic-related, pop culture-related courses at their, at their school or university. How does someone go about if they're not at a big major school, how do they go about looking to see if a class is offered at their school, or how do they go about getting a comic book related course offered at their at their school? Sure, um, I think there's a great story in what is probably the very first comic book class offered. Okay, you know, might be the first one that I know about. Uh, Michael Uslan, the executive producer of Batman Begins and mm-hmm. The Dark Knight. Um, he was at the university or Indiana University, and they had an experimental department, right, in the College of Arts and Sciences, experimental right. curriculum. So you could teach anything in it. Mm-hmm. So he created a course on comic books, claiming that comics were this legitimate art form, and and he got the backing of the folklore department, and he went to meet with the dean. So he's sitting at this long conference table right out of the just you know it's the secret sanctum of the justice league and this is uh early 70s and he's wearing a spider-man t-shirt and he's got long hair you know he's a hippie yeah and there's this professor at the end of the table says to him uh so you're the fellow who wants to teach a course on funny books at my university and so he knew he knew he was in trouble and he said i i got i get it i read comics when i was a kid i loved superman when i was a kid but, you know, modern-day mythology, no. It just, it's, I reject it. So he, he said, I understand. And he asked the professor to summarize the story of Moses. Just give a brief summary. So mm-hmm. he said, well, the Hebrews are being persecuted. A Hebrew couple places their infant son in a little whisker ba- wicker basket, sends him down the River Nile. He's discovered by an Egyptian family. They raise him as their own son. He grows up, learns of his her- heritage, and becomes a great hero. Michael Uslan said, great, that's great, just stop right there. And you mentioned that you knew the Superman comics. Can, can you tell me the origin of Superman? And the professor says, sure, sure. The planet Krypton explodes. The scientist and his wife place their infant son in a little rocket ship and send him to Earth. There, he's discovered by the Kents, who raise him as their own son. When he grew up, and I remember Michael Uslan told us this story at the, uh, at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, so everybody's hanging on his word. Mm-hmm. He said, and so when he grew up, he became 
And that's when the professor stopped, stared at him, and went, your course is approved. Cool. Because you, what Yuzlin had done is he had shown that there was a connection mm-hmm. between something that this professor valued, classic literature, classic mythology, and comics. Right. So that's been one of the ways in which comics have gotten into the curriculum by having instructors, graduate students, faculty demonstrate that there's that there's an analogy there. Mm-hmm. Um, that's how they started out, and now it's it's branched out so that comics are actually being studied as comics. Right. I, I find it interesting because you know I I don't know if I've mentioned before on this show, but I'm teaching a class. This is the second time that the course has been uh, taught. It's an interdisciplinary course that essentially the university came up with. Uh, a plan where students could take one extra hour of really anything that they wanted uh, to make up their gen ed program. And they told the faculty, hey, look, we're going to make these interdisciplinary courses that may not be your area of of study, may not be your master's or your PhD area of study, but something that you know about. So there were philosophers coming out wanting to teach courses on uh, the Narnia books. And I said, hey, I know a lot about comic books and a lot about film because that's my background. Why don't I teach a class on comics and how they're adapted to film? And so I had to go before this uh, committee and essentially lay out everything, had the uh, the syllabus planned out. And they're like, well, why, why, is, this in- why is this interesting to to today's students. Why is this important now? And that led into a discussion of pop culture and how a lot of things now hinge on pop culture. And they said, well, what movies really would you reference in this course? And I said, well, why don't you look on the last page of the syllabus where I have some recent recommended uh, movies that have been adapted from comic books. And it's a full page, two column of comic books from the last 20 or movies from the last 20 years that have all been from comic books and they looked at this and they're like oh i know road to perdition oh i know 300 okay approved and so it was kind of that way where you kind of have to spell things out for people in order to uh get them to realize how important comic books are in today's culture yeah, you took you took movies that they knew and liked, right. and then you pointed out something they didn't know. So right. it's that same sort of strategy. For for undergraduates, if they're interested in developing comics teaching, there's a couple of things they can do. The first is work comic books into their classes. If you mm-hmm. can write a paper on comic book, do it. My first paper was, that I wrote on a comic book was on Mage, the hero discovered, mm-hmm. in an Arthurian class. Hmm. Uh, I later wrote, in graduate school, I wrote a paper uh, for a Vietnam class on Doonesbury. Right. So, you work it in where you can. Um, I wrote a paper on uh, uh, comics, newspaper comics, in a a leisure class, on a class on sports and leisure. So, Hmm. that's the first thing to do. The second thing to do is go to your professors, to your instructors, and let them know you'd be interested. Um, if you can put together a group of people to sign a letter, colleges these days are very interested in enrollments. They're very oh, yeah. interested in filling seats. Mm-hmm. So if your school knows that there's an interest out there, it can develop it. The Savannah College of Art and Design now has offers a degree in sequential art. Right. So it's a production degree. Why do they have it? Because their illustration students kept asking for it. So if you ask for it, there may be something there. If well, you're well, let me a ask you this. Where, where, sure, should they, where should they go? I mean, you kind of approached yours from uh, the literature uh, area. Mm-hmm. What about somebody that might be in 
an animation or the art department? Where is there a p- specific department you should try to pitch to? Um, English departments are probably going to be the easiest. Okay. Uh, the next are communication departments. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's possible to go to history and um, journalism. Uh, I'm teaching a course. Uh, I've taught a course the last two years, and I'm probably teaching it in, in fall, too, at Webster University in the media department. Mm-hmm. And it's really about genre. So it's about uh, how the superhero genre. Okay. Um, so those are the main sort of departments that it's typically taught at. But you never know. Uh, Henderson State University, where uh, Randy Duncan is. Randy Duncan is the co-founder of the Comics Arts Conference. Their psychology department has a comics focus in it because mm. of one psychology professor. Mm-hmm. So you never know exactly where that's going to be. And, and so one of the things in asking about it is you find professors who are comics fans. There you go. Professors who grew up reading comics and or your grad, graduate students or um, adjunct faculty who grew up reading comics, who like comics, mm-hmm. who are interested in comics. And you let them know that they can fill a class. Right. Then, if they know they can fill a class, then they have the ability to go to the chair of the department or a curriculum committee mm-hmm. uh, and offer it. Now, typically what's going to happen is comics courses are offered as topics courses, yep. as special courses. It takes a long time for, for a course to get into the curriculum. Yeah, how does that, that work at, at some universities then? Because, I mean, at some places like... At Fort Hayes, where I teach, it's, it's just like you're explaining. We can teach a class three times as a topics class before it uh, has to be put forth as a full course. But then you also have things where you've got different faculty members, graduate assistants, part-time faculty teaching some of these classes. How does that fit into the to the grand scheme of things? Well, that's that. The reason most of the time where it's taught as a special course or a topics course, and these courses tend to be driven by the individual. As long as that individual is at the university, a comics course will be taught. Mm -hmm. Um, At Webster University, there was a comics course uh, four or five years ago because there was a graduate student in uh, in media and journalism who wanted to teach a comics class. Well, he did, and then he left. He actually went off um, to do an internship at, uh, I think, Marvel. I know the chair, the chair, my book came out, the chair said, hey, would you like to do your class, do it, do it as a book, do take your book and do it as a class? And I said, yeah, um, because my wife is uh, in the English department there. Mm-hmm. So if things like that tend to happen through those connections, but they tend to be short-term things. Mm-hmm. Getting it into the catalog as a permanent thing is much more difficult because a chair can approve a topics class. Right. That's no problem. When it gets into the catalog, it has to go through the whole curriculum committee, has to go through the, uh, a lot of times up to the faculty senate. Yep. It has to go through a lot of bureaucratic paperwork. And unless there's a strong reason and a strong demand in a particular department, uh, it's very unlikely that it's going to get through, partially because of prejudice, but partially because it's kind of a zero-sum game. Um, Departments have to offer certain courses, so they have to be careful about filling up on what some people might consider fluff. Things that are yeah. not, not fluff so much, but non-core material that has to get taught. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, if you're an English major, you're going to take major British writers one and two, American writers one and two. You're going to, you know, you're going to take introduction to literature. You have to take certain classes, and the problem is at the moment comics. 
because they're words and pictures, and they really they really uh, sort of challenge the whole idea of disciplinarity, mm-hmm. uh, disciplinary specific um, knowledge and, and and teaching and methods and so forth. They're it's going to be difficult for a comics class to become a permanent part of a department. Yeah. It's probably only going to happen if there's a full-time member of the department who has the power to get some stuff done, has some favors he can pull, she mm-hmm. can pull, that sort of thing. It's going to be a political decision and it's more and, than anything else. And I think it also probably has to do with being able to fill those seats up. Uh, for me, I was told, hey, look, uh, one, of, one of my interdisciplinary studies courses uh, did not have very many people in it this semester. And, and the chair of the department said, hey, look, we're going to have to do something about this course because if we can't get it filled up, there's no point in offering it in the future. Now, the comic book course, we don't have that problem, but that's a big thing, like you said earlier, with most universities. They're worried about uh, numbers and seats and how many people are generating um, money for the university through that particular course. Yeah, and comics courses are one of those things they fill uh, right. on the whole. They fill, they fill quickly, and so departments like to offer them because they're just gravy. Yes. They, they pull people um, who would be taking something else into the department, mm-hmm. and, and so schools like that, departments like that. But to go further than that oftentimes takes a fairly significant shift of focus that's um, it's difficult to achieve, um, mm-hmm. th- and that's why adjuncts and, and TAs, t- uh, teaching assistants, graduate students. Um, the thing is, they can get those courses actually offered a lot of times more often than a a full time faculty member mm. because uh, my wife teaches in English department. You know, somebody's they got to have somebody teaching Shakespeare, right? right. Uh, they got to have somebody teaching intro fiction. They got to mm-hmm. have somebody teaching. Um, the uh, uh, literary criticism course. Mm-hmm. So if she's going to go off and teach a comics class, who's going to teach the literary criticism class? Right. And how can they justify having a full-time faculty member not teaching the literary criticism class, which is required for their majors to graduate, and off teaching something that's not a core class? Yeah. So uh, that's one of the reasons why, at least to get classes on the schedule, adjuncts and teaching assistants who are transitive, transitory are actually a, a, better, a better approach, although having a full-time faculty member back uh, the offering is very helpful. Uh, well, I will say one thing. Once a, a course gets on the books... Once it's in that course catalog, it's very hard to remove it from the catalog. So even if an instructor steps away for a while or a graduate assistant uh, moves on, once it's in the in the catalog, another graduate student could come along and say, hey, I'd like to teach that course. Or another faculty member could uh, say, I'd like to teach that course. So it's very – some people might want to look in their college catalogs because there may already be a course on the books that just hasn't been taught in a couple of years. Absolutely. And, and you can look in the back uh, – past catalogs, and now that the catalogs are searchable online, mm-hmm. uh, you can find things. For instance, at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago, um, they are offering, um, they offer a couple of, uh, of comics classes, and you know, you just, you can go on and search for them. Uh, there's a couple of faculty members, they have faculty members in a variety of departments mm-hmm. uh, that offer it. They're building a comic studies curriculum, actually. Oh, cool. um, and so that's one of the places to check. But you go on, you get the, the online catalog and search for comic. 
because you don't know if it's going to be comics or comic book. Right, 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 right. So, what are yeah. what are some other courses that are being taught around the nation this semester that you're aware of that deal with comics, comic books in some form? Sure. Well, there's a course, and I can't find whether it's being taught this semester or not, but it's called uh, Philosophy in Modern Media. Mm. Um, I put this off of an Amazon list, and it includes things like Animal Man wow. uh, understand, Understanding Comics. It looks mm-hmm. like that's the major offering from that. Um, a couple other ones at uh, Rocco Versace, who is a professor at... Uh, uh, Palomar, he's teaching English 290, comic books as literature. Okay. And that looks like it's a regular class. He's doing uh, Ivan Brunetti's anthology, uh, his own book. Um, wow. Called This Book Contains Graphic Language, <laughs> Charles Burns's Black Hole, uh, Watchmen, Alison McTell's Fun Home. Mm-hmm. Um, so that one's being offered. Uh, another place uh, that offers a number of comics classes is the University of Florida. In their English department, they have a comic studies focus. So they've got, you know, Writing 3030, the comic book in American culture. I hmm. uh, was taught in spring 2004. Uh, comics is communication. Um, oh, these are, sorry, these are different places. Uh, that, was, that first one was taught in Georgia Southern. Comics is communication at Henderson State University. Um, let me pull up some of the syllabi that I've had people send me, and we can take a look at uh, what um, some of the things that are offered. Sure. When you're looking at these syllabi, is there mm-hmm. one course text that a lot of people use over and over again? You mentioned understanding comics, and that's what I use uh, for my course as well, because people really need to understand this visual language uh, that Scott McLeod's talking about in the book to understand how that same language works or doesn't work in motion pictures or television or web video. Sure, and com- uh, Understanding Comics is um, clearly one of the leading books that's taught because mm-hmm. it's, um, you know, it's, it's accessible, people can use it. I'm, I'm, I'm planning a course at Washington University, uh, I mean, University of Washington, sorry, and I'll be using... Um, Understanding comics. In fact, I'm giving a, I'm giving a talk in a couple of weeks in a children's literature course. Oh, cool! And uh, so I was asked to pick out some readings. So I've got some readings from uh, there was a journal called Inks mm-hmm. from Ohio State University. Got there's an anti comics crusade against car- comic strips back in the in the aughts and the teens. Right. And then I've got another article on the uh, on the anti comics crusade under Wortham mm-hmm. the 1950s. And I've got something from a children's literature professor, Charles Hatfield, uh, on on uh, current comic studies in children's literature. But I'm also using the first chapter of Understanding Comics Excellent. because I want these students to understand what comics are. You know? Yeah, they're just a, they're a so, lot more than and, just these little squiggles. Yeah. Right. Exactly. And the other the other books that are pretty common, uh, Watchmen, mm-hmm. because if somebody's going to teach one superhero text, yeah. Watchmen or Dark Knight tend mm-hmm. to be the superhero texts that are mm-hmm. taught. Yeah, this yep. year for my class, for example, we're going to specifically be looking at Watchmen and Wanted, two, well, semi-accessible uh, comic books that will, one being turned into a film, one that's already been turned into a film, that uh, that they can compare a lot easier than, you know, a whole group of comics like Superman and try to select a, a selection from Superman and say that represents any one of the films that have already been made. Yeah, that that, that 
it tends to be uh, that people teach discrete texts. They right. teach um, graphic novels, collections, and so forth, partially because, and this is a big difference between now and 20 and 30 years ago, even 10 years ago, stuff is available. Um, mm-hmm. For instance, I taught, when I taught my superhero class, Tigby. I actually wrote for Watchmen because I'd lost mine or given it away or something. I actually emailed Paul Levitz, the publisher mm-hmm. of DC Comics, because I have his email. And, you know, he took care of it. But now they're going to be distributed by Random House. Mm-hmm. And those sorts of things, it makes a huge difference in availability because bookstores don't know how to order comics. Yeah. University bookstores, this is one of the problems. To get comic books for a freshman seminar course I taught years ago, I actually, a friend of mine who has a, um, an account with Diamond, the comic book distributor, he got me the comics. I paid for them, and the students had to pay me back. Yeah. Um, so it is actually becoming easier now for, um, for comic books to be taught in universities because of distribution in places like Borders, and, and Barnes and & Noble has made it easier. Uh, having things on Amazon, though, you know, you don't necessarily, a teacher doesn't necessarily have to go through their university bookstore. Right. If they have, that's problematic. They right. can just say, just get them on Amazon. And certainly with people yeah. uh, learning about Watchmen, it shouldn't be too hard with, uh, with Paul Levitt saying that they're going to uh, go to print with 900,000 uh, copies very soon, and they'll probably distribute over 1 million new copies before the end of the year. Well, an interesting thing about Watchmen and Mouse and Dark Knight, uh, back in the 90s when I was looking at teaching a comics class at Michigan State University, which didn't come about, um, one of the things, I went down to the bookstore, and he said, well, look, I can get you Watchmen, I can get you Mouse, I can get you Dark Knight, because they were in a used book warehouse down in Chicago. Mm. Because enough people in enough schools had used them that, that students could get used copies. Cool. And the ability to get used copies is uh, is very very important oh, in yeah. terms of of managing uh, um, the cost for the students. Right, right. So, what are some of the classes, the specific classes that you found the syllabi that that you have? Sure. Well, there's one called uh, the history of the superhero, and it's taught at the University of Oregon by uh, Professor Ben Saunders. He uh, traces, uh, you know, going through the whole. History of Superhero, but he looks at um, Ultimate Spider-Man, Dark Knight Returns, Essential Spider-Man, Essential Fantastic Four, Superman Chronicles Volume 1. Hmm. Um, and that's, and obviously Watchmen, um, and that's one of the things. Now that DC is publishing those Superman Chronicles and the Essentials, mm-hmm. those are texts that come up frequently. Um, School of the Artists in Chicago, Michael Bonesteel teaches a uh, comic book. So here he's teaching, this was in the, um, in, actually this is right now, uh, so in Chicago, sign up, because this is in the <laughs> adult um, uh, continuing education oh, class. Excellent. It's called Eyes of the Contemporary Comic Books. Wow. So that's a class starting in the 1980s, how comic books came of age and uh, became emancipated from their adolescent origins. So he's looking at Spiegelman, the Hernandez brothers, uh, Alan Moore, Chris Ware, Frank Miller, Gaiman. You know, and he just lists the um, the authors there. Mm-hmm. So that's very interesting. He doesn't even list the titles. Wow. Um, another interesting school is the uh, Minnesota College of Art and Design. Um, they teach art. So their students take comic book classes. Well, 
production classes. Uh, Diana Green is teaching history of comics, hmm. you know, and it's uh, mm-hmm. history three six five seven. So um, she's teaching, uh, uh, you know, a whole range there of comics, trying to cover the, um, you know, starting with Crazy and Ignatz, uh, Wonder Woman, Modesty Blaze. Uh, Swamp Thing, Donna Bar's Peach uh, Slices, um, and uh, Disney Comics, um, as well as oh, actually, she's recommended my book, Superhero <laughs> Superhero Genre. It's always nice. Um, uh, the class that I'm hopefully going to teach at the university at uh, Washington University, you know, I'm going to start with Rudolf Topfer mm-hmm. and and talk about him, and then talk about uh, the early strips. And then move into the comic book. So I'm gonna. It's a survey class, sure. and I think it may be taught, uh, offered under children's lit. Oh, okay. As a children's lit, but that may work its way into the catalog with any luck. Um, Kent Worcester, or Kent, sorry, Kent Wooster, at Marymount Manhattan College teaches a course called Comics and Animation, mm. um, and uh, it looks like he. Um, covers a whole bunch of things the cartoon art comic books comic strips in a critical and scholarly framework now he's a political science professor oh cool uh he's one of the only political science professors to teach but he uses mcleod he looks at uh max fleischer cartoons walt disney cartoons chuck avery cartoons but then he gets into uh best american comics and uh you know and he has a speaker one of the things that frequently happens like i know that uh superhero class at uh, University of Oregon is oftentimes there's somebody who lives in the area, mm-hmm. an artist or a writer, mm-hmm. and that person comes in and does a talk. But uh, here is a speech class, a well, liberal arts seminar, not just kid stuff, comic books and popular culture. Mm-hmm. And this is at, uh, <laughs> I actually don't, I don't have the school. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, it's funny, you know, people don't typically put the name of their school in their syllabus. Ah. But uh, Marvel, Sandman, Watchmen, Understanding Comics, Akira, mm-hmm. Why the Last Man, Kingdom Come. Now, one of the interesting things um, that has come up from this is that, is there a canon? Well, no. Is there a canon? Yes. If you took all the comic book courses taught in the country, and this is something I'm actually working on, mm-hmm. And lined up the syllabi together and made a list of all the books and did a sort of uh, regression analysis, you would find there is a canon. You would find that there's certain texts that get taught over and over again. Right. And that's how the canon in literature developed. Mm -hmm. So, a communications course at uh, Wittenberg in Ohio uh, taught by Matt Smith called Comic Books as Culture. And so, looking at how comic books through a historical, theoretical, critical arguments about the medium, and then read some of the best and worst. Now, what's interesting is Matt Smith also teaches a course at Comic-Con. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he teaches, uh, it's called The Culture of Popular Things. Yeah. He, students come in, it's a one-week course. Um, they meet uh, in the morning at breakfast, and then they scatter at Comic-Con and investigate by um, doing really ethnographic analysis of mm-hmm. the people who are at Comic-Con. Um, so that's a comic book that can actually be taught, or co- of course, can actually be taught at Comic-Con. And Matt Smith and Randy Duncan are, are authoring a book called The Power of Comics, 
an introduction to graphic storytelling. It's from Continuum, uh-huh. uh, which has published many good books on comics. That is designed as a comics textbook. Oh, cool. And that is going to make it easier to teach comics. Excellent. Now you Because you, you could... Go ahead. No, go ahead. No, go ahead. I was going to say, uh, you know, that might be a book that I, in my communication and media class, would pick up. Mm-hmm. I might pick up that class that are teaching in an English class. It, mm-hmm. it, it, I haven't seen a draft of the book yet, but I'm familiar with some of the things that they're doing. Um, and that makes it easier to teach. Uh, University of Mississippi Press, University of Press Mississippi, is coming out with Understanding the Superhero, or the Superhero Reader, mm-hmm. uh, from Kent Wooster. Um, and that's going to have one of, actually, it's going to have my definition in it. But that would be a way of teaching a superhero class, which wouldn't necessarily be a comic book class. Right. But it would, it would have comics in it, obviously. Now, you had said you have a couple of books that you've published, but they're out of print, right? My, my one book that I've published called Superhero, The Secret Origin of Genre is out of print, although I have a commitment from a publisher in Britain to bring it back into print. And if for some reason that falls through, I have a commitment from another publisher here in America to bring it back into print. So uh, I need to get back in touch um, uh, with my publisher in Britain, check out what's going on, and move that forward. Yeah, looking at uh, Amazon right now, it says one used copy will ship in three to six weeks. Yeah. Actually, uh, it's been running at uh, 90 to $200. I just saw a copy the other day for 11 bucks. so wow. you never know what's going to be up. Wow. Now, you said you were going to teach this class in September. Can you tell us a little bit more about this? Is it a guest lecture, or is it a full mini-course, or, or what's the deal it's with a, it? It's, it's a guest lecture. Uh, it's for Gerald Early, who is a, a major scholar in children's literature, uh, African-American literature. Mm-hmm. And this is one of the things that... Who knew Gerald Early liked comics? Well, he, I found out about it because he, he did a little um, collection show. He donated his collection to the library because oh, okay. his wife said, get these comic books out of my house. <laughs> um, that's how Dwight Duke University has a big comics collection because these two brothers uh, were living with their mother. They're grown. And uh, she said, get these comic books out of my house. Wow. So, have comics, donate them to your school because it makes it possible to teach. Um, and so he, uh, being a, responsibly looking at, at children's literature, he's decided that comic books are one part of children's literature. And mm-hmm. this is a point that Charles Hatfield makes in an article about um, children's literature and comic studies and comic books, that it's really been a blind spot uh, for children's literature scholars to not look at comics. And it's been a blind spot for comic scholars to not understand things about children's literature. So, this I'm just one of the guest lecturers for the class. I'm going in and doing a, a talk for an hour. We'll have another hour for uh, uh, um, another hour for questions and so forth. And I'm going to cover what comics are. I'm going to cover how they've been viewed as children's literature, um, looking at the anti-comics crusades in the teens mm-hmm. and, and in the 50s, and then talk about now where um, Amy Nyberg, a scholar who wrote on the Comics Code, a book called Seal of Approval, she argues in one of her articles that comics, because they're you know, approved by the Comics Code and so forth, and because of the contents of many of them, really are in many ways, children's literature. Right. Charles Hatfield argues that because the readers are no longer children, they're not children's literature in a sense. Um, and so there's a real debate over the relationship between 
comics and children's literature. Um, so I'm going to look at that, how comics aren't uh, really being read by children anymore. And I'm also going to talk about understanding comics so that the students who are studying children's literature will understand, at least from McLeod's perspective, it's a perspective that's, that's graspable. It's, it's, uh, mm-hmm. it's been modified. A lot of people have been looking at it since, more, getting more complex things. But McLeod's very useful for getting across how comics are different from other things. Mm-hmm. Now, this is not a lecture that's open to the general public, right? It has to be you're involved in the course? Right, exactly. I'm a guest speaker in okay. a class, so I'm right. not uh, giving it as a talk. I, I do have a plan to work with the uh, library here, public library, to do some programming. So I'm hoping I'm hoping to do something with that uh, maybe in the spring. Okay. Um, and I'm hoping actually to get up to the um, Indiana Indianapolis Children's Museum has a big uh, superhero exhibit. Yeah. And so I'm hoping to develop some. Um, Kids programming talks and so forth that I can give and and uh, with any luck um, get up there. My my sister in law works at a museum in uh, Indianapolis and has some contacts. So cool. Well, with any luck, I Peter. Can in addition to being the director of the Institute of Comic Studies and the co-founder and co-chair of the Comic Arts Conference and an instructor at uh, Webster University in St. Louis, you're also going to be a new editor at a magazine. And it's probably going to kind of tie into something we'll talk about with you next month, uh, digital comics. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, political comics. Yep. Right? Yep. You will do, do that, that in October. November. October, um, yeah. In October. Uh, yeah, absolutely. It's called – the magazine is called Looking Glass Magazine, and the website will be up at uh, www.lookingglassmagazine.com, but it's not up yet. Uh, it's a product from the Hot Phone Hit Factory. Okay. Um, uh and you can that can be Googled. Uh, they're producing a number of magazines for the iPhone Excellent. and for iTunes. So it'll be it'll come out in print, and then it'll go into electronic, and, and with any luck, it'll come back into print. Uh, you got to think about revenue stream. Yeah, but uh, it's going to have a section on film, sports, literature, music, uh, travel, and comics. Cool. And the conceit of the magazine it's twelve magazines in one. So every month. Uh, one of the sections will get a uh, of the cover. Oh, uh, my section is called comics, but it's spelled. The O has a slash. The the I is an exclamation point. The C is the uh, uh, copyright symbol. The S is the dollar symbol, and then it, and then it, so it looks like comic book swear word. Basically. Right, right, right. And I'm looking at politics, superheroes, and comics, and and we're going to have a. Um, we're going to talk about digital comics mm-hmm. uh, in the section that I call the department called Adapt or Die. <laughs> because cool. if you look at Marvel Comics, you know, they made more money on Iron Man, or at mm-hmm. least the gross revenues of Iron Man were probably more than their sales. Dark Knight, they sold more tickets than DC Comics sells comics in a year. Yeah. So Adapt or Die, that's where the, that's where the money is. Um, but we also have a thing on, on politics. For instance, uh, I'm going to look at how would Superman vote. Oh, okay. Yeah, the, the cover of uh, the Comic-Con, uh, San Diego Comic-Con events guide this year, was an elephant in a Superman suit and a donkey in a Batman suit. 
So it implies that Superman is Republican, Don, Batman is a Democrat. Well, Superman, when he first came out, was a, almost an anarchistic socialist. Right, he was right. very much toward the New Deal, but he took it. In. And then he kind of, you could see him kind of following Reagan and Frank Sinatra and becoming a kind of Reagan Democrat, right? Uh-huh. With the Dark Knight. Uh, Bruce Wayne in the in the 40s would have been a rock-ribbed Republican, right? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And in the 70s, uh, 80s, 90s, he became a limousine uh, liberal. Batman is a fascist, and he doesn't vote. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> Batman wouldn't vote for anyone, because if Batman sees a problem with politics, right. he goes and arrests, you know, puts the person in jail, yeah. right? But Batman's view of, of politics is that it's corrupt, and that, uh, you know, you can sort of fight the corruption, but... I, I have a very hard time believing that even Bruce Wayne uh, believes that voting does any good, but he might do it in a public way to look like a responsible citizen. Excellent. Well, we'll be talking okay. more about this magazine, and then we'll be talking about comics and politics in October. And, uh, yeah. Peter, I want to thank you again for stopping by and chatting with us on the show. Oh, and one more thing. Sure. Clark Kent is a Democrat, so. Ah, all right. I think yeah, it was great uh, talking to you again, Steve, and I'm looking forward to, uh, to next month. Excellent. Thanks, Peter. I took a uh, comic book seminar or something like that. Yeah? Or Where, independent at study at Northwestern. Basically, uh-huh. we uh, talked the professor into um, basically certifying the class. And we always we kept asking him. He was like, well, because he was the media texts right. uh, professor, and he was great. And we are always like, come down, you know, meet with us, and we'll talk about it. And he never did. So we just... Went home, read a graphic novel, came back and talked about it. That's pretty cool, yeah. Matthew. Have you Got ever credit for it? Have you ever taken any comic book classes? I, I've read a lot of <laughs> during classes. <laughs> <laughs> I I will say I did mention my uh, comic book to film class. We are working on making that a virtual class next fall, so people from anywhere in the country could uh, take that class if you were so inclined. I'll mention it uh, as it gets closer to next year. Uh, A couple other things I wanted to remind people. Don't forget our Dark Knight statue, the big contest that two people have entered for Mm. this limited edition $175-plus statue that has two people that entered. This is your last week to get your stuff in. The contest closes August 31st, and we will be drawing next Tuesday right here on the show for one of our, our winners to get this. And uh, Boy Hermit is so confident that his one entry is going to uh, get it for him. I, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna play favorites because I really like what Julian has done. He's got a what, like a one in six chance. He's got a one in eight chance now. Julian sent in two more. Now get this though, <laughs> get this now, Julian. I know he's listening. Julian went down to the uh, Tony Harris, what is it, War Heroes uh, signing that they had, oh. and he got his picture with the with the sign and with Tony Harris, and then he got Tony Harris to sign the major spoiler sign. And Julian was like, well, do you want me to just send it to you guys or do you want me to keep it? And, I was, and this is my challenge to you, Julian. Keep getting artists and creators to sign this poster, to sign this little mini poster. Fill it up with names. I, I'll, I'll get you a special prize, you know, sometime next year after you go to Comic-Con and you get all these artists and creative types to do that. That would be very cool to have uh, yeah. autographed by all these people. Uh, yeah. So that's the Dark Knight contest. There is still plenty of time for people to enter this thing. You've got until midnight on August 31st to get it to me. So 
plenty of plenty of opportunity. The contest rules are up there on the Major Spoilers website. Also, we have that Major Spoilers theme song contest. Major Spoilers theme song! Did you notice I left that little pause in there just so <laughs> Matthew could... Could stick it's that almost in there. like we rehearse. It's awesome. <laughs> Which we don't. I, yeah, we rehearse as, nothing on the show. I think they realized that, Roderick. <laughs> at least he didn't say Blarney Cock this time. Yeah, well, there you go. Slagator. <laughs> yeah. So this is the way it works. You guys create a theme song for us. I played a sample of one last week that I really liked. Uh, but you can enter as many times as you like. Any genre is acceptable that you can do it. And sometime in November, we will listen to them all and pick our new major spoilers theme song. And the winner will get the absolute edition of The Watchmen uh, when Ooh. it comes out, this next printing that comes out that I believe is in, in uh, November. We will... Uh, I guess we'll make the contest open until Thanksgiving mm-hmm. here in the U.S. That's- and this is a contest that's open to anybody worldwide. And Anywhere- I'd like to hear a bluegrass theme like like Flatten Scruggs, Hill- Beverly Hillbillies theme That'd be that pretty describes awesome. the major spoilers experience. And it doesn't even have to have words. If it has words, that's fine. But if it doesn't, that works better because then as we're Matthew's doing his little blast everybody but Matthew intro, <laughs> he can talk over that music. So uh, get those in. It, oh, it should oh, be... It should be really good. I am very pleased with the entries that we've received so far. I think we've received six on that contest. Nope. So That was not a blast at you, Stan. That was just, you know. <laughs> Matthew Show. It's the Matthew Show. Where Matthew <laughs> hey! talks about comic books. It's the Matthew Show. The Matthew Show. <laughs> Everything about Matthew on the show. Featuring Steven Rodrigo. <laughs> okay. Poll of the week. The major spoilers poll of the week. Poll, poll, poll. Speaking of weak polls. <laughs> hey, my Viagra came in today. Hello. And there's our adult rating. Uh, this week, Steve decided to, to shake it up a little bit rather than doing a standard one-on-one fight. Although, yes. now that you mention it, no, I, I can't go there. We really would have right. an adult. Yeah. All right, all right, all right. We're going to have more of a, a group outing, sort of a of a round robin, what, what they call in the WWE a six-pack challenge, although I think there may be more than six. Nope, there's six. There's six? All right, it's a six-pack challenge for the World Heavyweight Championship, and that championship, of course, is your favorite female character from Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And I'm not going to do the in this corner six times, because if you have a six-cornered ring, well, you... I never mind. You know, it's really great when I lose track of even what I'm saying. I don't even listen to me. <laughs> but your choices this week around, of course, are uh, Buffy Ann Summers herself, the chosen one, or uh, Faith, whose last name escapes me, the other chosen one. <laughs> uh, Buffy's lovely sidekick, Willow Rosenberg, she of the magical black eyes. Uh, Cordelia, oh, what's her face, who uh, dis- disappeared to another show and. Uh, Never really cared for her myself. Ah, blasphemy. Uh, blasphemy. How it was a blasphemy too. Thank you very much. <laughs> Anyanka, the former terror demon who turned into a really, really good dancer when she was a human. And uh Willow's and long lost girlfriend Tara, who is proof that, you know, sometimes you can't come back. But six women, many, many geeks. I'm sure we all have our favorites. Steve, who you got? Yeah, you know who I forgot to put on the list, and I'm surprised no one's called me out on it? It's that... Uh, Dawn. It's, yeah, that, that character who, really, I didn't 
intentionally leave her off the list. I forgot about her mainly because she really doesn't register for me as a as a real Buffy well, character. Buffy femme. Yes. Well, and when she was on the show, she, she was, was like twelve. So. Yeah, that's that's the that's the excuse I gave Rodrigo when he said, "Where's Dawn? Where's Dawn?" I did not she's, say it like that. She's also a centaur now, which you know, yes, if you read, if you read cool. our reviews. <laughs> uh, me myself, you know, I think it's no secret that I'm a big Chris McCarpenter fan, mm-hmm. and uh, have follow. I mean, stalked. I mean, followed her for uh, years and years and years. Uh, so I'm just going to have to go with Cordelia on this. See, there you go. Just from hotness value. Now, if it was a big SmackDown fight, I think you'd probably have to go with Faith because she fights dirty. Yeah. But I voted for Cordelia. She's like Buffy, but scarier. Yes. Sure. And Rodrigo? really, yeah. Go ahead. Um, I, I would go with Willow because um, I like the mousy girls and because she can do magics. So that's, that's what I got magics. going. Did you just pronounce magic with a K? Yes, he did. I will slap the taste <laughs> out of your mouth. <laughs> it's true awakened magic. Well, as but do you like uh, do you like uh, good witch Willow or do you like black eyed freaky Willow? Naughty um, witch Willow. <laughs> no, I like I like the regular Willow. I like you know I kind of go for that uh, nerdy dorky y- young librarian. Type. There you go. All right. So, Matthew, the circle comes around, or the six-sided uh, uh, fight ring comes back around to you. See, this is tough for me, and anybody who's ever seen me at an all-you-can-eat buffet knows that I have trouble making decisions. <laughs> because, I mean, the actress who played Tara was really beautiful. I mean, really ridiculously beautiful. Yeah. And Anya was cute as heck. Yeah. And Cordelia's okay. And, of course, oh, man. I had a She's terrible hot. crush on Willow for the longest time. But... I had the privilege of actually seeing um, the actress who plays Faith at a distance, but oh, yeah, in real too, she is ridiculously uh, attractive, uh, and so uh, I had to go with Faith Eliza Dushku. Eliza Dushku. Uh, I believe it's French. It means Dushku. Looks good in tight leather. <laughs> but from a I'm character like perspective, to me, I'd have to go with your <laughs> argument on Faith as well. Faith, to me, is is one of the most well-rounded because, I mean, she was never really evil. She was always very self-centered. And I love the, the portrayal of the character as trying and failing to get it right. And every time she'd do something stupider or more insane or more suicidal, you'd feel like she was trying hard to get it right. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, I love I love that. Uh, I, I like Sunboy from the Legion for the same reasons. Kept trying to do it right and kept misstepping so horribly. You just can't help but feel for the character. Yeah, until Plus, finally she just snaps and says, ah, screw it. I'm doing it whatever the way I want. Kill, kill, exactly. stabby, stabby. Stabby McStabbington. Plus she's hotter than donut grease, so she's got that going for her, which you know, is nice. I think all of the women in the poll are, are very attractive women. Mm-hmm. See? I for me – this this is probably a sad tale for me, but the least attractive woman in in the poll for me I is know, probably it's probably Buffy, right? Probably Sarah Michelle Buffy herself, yeah. yeah. Which is because, a shame. Well, I I don't know. I'd I'd put her above the lady who plays Anya. I've never never thought it was all. She's oh all no that. no no! You have to look at the open from like season four where Anya is dancing, and she's just like completely lost in dancing, and I'm just like, I love you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Anya in the uh, bunny suit. 
That's attractive. Uh, the early results in up on the Major Spoilers website, 120 people have already voted. And uh, my eyes, I haven't got my new glasses yet, so I have to pull this computer a little closer well, to me. See here, Shane. Hey, shut up, you. Faith is in the lead right Faith now. Faith is in the lead. Actually, it's a uh, it's a two-way tie between Faith and Willow. Each have 29% of the vote. Uh, you haven't up to date. Am I? Uh, let me see. Uh, Buffy comes in third with 16% of the vote. Here I'm doing a refresh here, so it has the latest the latest numbers. This is just like election time, ladies and gentlemen. Yes, I keep pushing a lot F5. less relevant. Oh, I'm sorry, Faith. Yeah, you're correct. Faith has taken the lead with 31 percent to Willow's 29. Buffy in third with 16. Cordelia in fourth with 12 percent. Anya at 11 percent. And poor Tara, poor dead shot in the head Tara, two percent of the vote. Man, that's a huge amount of people that have, that vote in this poll. Just moments ago, I said 119 people have voted. Refreshed, 130 people have voted. There you go. Buffy is certainly a popular topic on the Major Spoilers website. Indeed. And the Major Spoilers fans prove once again that I'm right. <laughs> the Matthew Show. The Matthew the math show. show. If you hey, love the Matthew the Show, head over to Matthew. Oh, sorry. <laughs> go ahead. One of the things that uh, was really my suggestion, but Matthew took up on it, uh, is this idea of we have a lot of comics that we review. And once again, my goal was to try write one review a day this week. But unfortunately, this little thing called school got in my way and uh, other life issues with sick children and whatnot. So I haven't been able to do that. So why not take a whole episode, all the remaining time that we have today, and just rapidly or semi-rapidly go through and review a buttload of issues. More than three, <laughs> certainly less than 20, or more than 20. More than three, less than 20? I don't know what I'm talking about. What about those of us who have slightly larger butts? Do we get more comics in our buttload? <laughs> Apparently. And is it the same? Apparently so. <laughs> I believe the buttload is the imperial measurement. We should, we should go to the metric system and use the ass load from Well, now since on. this is the Matthew show, the, the Matthew, Matthew show. show. Uh, I would Matthew, like why don't you come kick... up with a Matthew Show theme song as well. What Thank prize you. are you going to provide him for that? They're um, certainly not getting no Watchmen trade out of me. They get to sing the Matthew Show theme song on the Matthew Show. <sighs> Matthew, why don't you kick us off with a with your first review? Am I not really enough of a prize in and of myself? You're a big, <laughs> big, big, wonderful prize. We're, we're really too young star. for a spinoff here. We really haven't uh, <laughs> tested ourselves out. I'm afraid we'll both end up flopping and split our demographic. <laughs> yeah, Joni Bubs like Rodrigo yeah. went really bad. <laughs> but it turns out that Mark and Matthew was a huge hit for <laughs> For all of 10 uh, minutes. That's before the greatest start... American Stephen came in and, and blew the ratings. Believe <laughs> it or not, I'm 35 balding. Oh. No, I'm 38. Actually, next week I'm 38. Woot! Happy birthday to ding, Steve. Ding. What were we talking about? Uh, your first Comic review this week, apparently. I don't know what we're talking about on the show this week. Can you believe <laughs> I'm drinking a caffeine-free Sierra Mist and Matthew's drinking water? Uh, no. It sure looks like water. Uh, yeah, um, okay. My Actually, my first review I've held off on for a while for a couple of reasons. First and foremost, and this is probably going to sound a little bit like, you know, more horn-blowing on this episode of The Matthew Show. I know the writer... So I wanted to hold off. I didn't want to seem like I was being, you know, easy on someone simply because I know them personally. But I also didn't want to go. Dropper. Really no, Name I didn't dropper. want to be really harsh on a project that someone I know really put a lot of work into. Okay. Um, a couple of years ago, we had a moment where an artist dropped in and I had made an assumption about his art 
in a review. And he popped in and said, that wasn't at all what I meant. And I was just kind of like, oh, yeah, there are real people behind these books. Dropped into the comic book store or dropped into the Major Spoiler site? Dropped into Majorspoilers.com. Oh, okay. okay. You should check it out at Majorspoilers.com. I, I have, I have <laughs> seen Matthew. That. Yeah. <laughs> but what I wanted to hit on this week was uh, proof number 10 from Image Comics. Oh, I yeah. Think, I think it's a couple of weeks old. Yeah. Um, proof is essentially it, – it's really kind of interesting. It's the story of – a Bigfoot, or perhaps the Bigfoot, a man named uh, a creature named John Proofrock, who, instead of being you know a, a wild creature, has actually started working for a government agency, helping to bring in other they call them cryptids in yeah. the book, other cryptozoologist type stuff, yeah, right. other characters like a ch the chupacabra, or they they reference fairies and they go through various and sundry parts of it. Um, the first arc of the book was the introductory arc where. The main character, Proof, is kind of seen through the eyes of our our go-to character, Ginger Brown, who's an FBI agent who is recruited to the Lodge, his portion of the FBI. Yeah. But issue 10 starts out with a really entertaining sequence for me. Um, Proof is in the South for reasons which I honestly don't remember. Um, I <laughs> and a giant a, a thunderbird or a giant flying creature comes flying out of the sky and picks up a little boy and yeah. starts to carry him away. And Proof ends up catching the creature, saving the child, you know, beating away this thing that was trying to kill and eat him. And immediately the boy's mother pulls a gun, comes out of the barn, and, and assumes that Proof is the creature that's trying to kill and eat her son. Oh, yeah, cool. So it's actually an interesting story where he uh, he's hallucinating because of a fever. And again... Mm -hmm. I honestly, I, I, I've lost bits and pieces of the storyline from the previous issue. It's not that it wasn't memorable. It's that my brain is, is nowhere to be. That's fine. That's where <laughs> it normally is at. You That's know, the true. thing that I like about Proof is that all these uh, cryptozoological myths or creatures that they go after, they're mm -hmm. actually based on real life, well, I shouldn't say real life stories. Yeah, right. The stories I of the Chupacabra op. op uh, you know, right. from Mexico, this tale of the Thunderbird carrying off a boy. That's an actual story about right. a report of the Thunderbird. I really like this, like this series. I, I think I've only read the first one or two issues before it dropped off my, my radar. Well, and it didn't drop off mine because the first three issues were kind of intriguing. And I usually give a book a good six issues to wow me. And then issue four, I kind of went, okay, I'm seeing where this is going. But by issue six, I really felt like, Again, I make the, the argument that I bought the first issue of Neil Gaiman's Sandman off the stands, didn't like it, and didn't come back. Yeah. So I still have that feeling of, oh, you schmuck, are you walking away from something that could be, you know, really awesome down the line? And I stuck around, and the book has gotten just more and more interesting and more and more layered for me simply because I like a big mythology. I like a story that seems to be taking place in a world that has its own backstory, a world that has its own, you know, myth, it has its own life. And the story that we're seeing here, the stories of, you know, these creatures and these characters and their interactions with humanity, it's really interesting to me. And it, it doesn't hurt that I'm sort of a crypto-zoological junkie myself. You know, I like, when I, I grew up reading Eric Van, da Van Daniken and all yeah. of the Time Life books, but yeah. proof is one of those series that's growing on me more each month. And issue 10, I'm going to have to go with an easy 3.5 out of 5. Cool. The art by, I believe, Riley Rossimo started out very raw. And even now, it's still kind of 
it's got a chunky feel to it, and I don't know how to describe it other than saying it looks like what I expect an independent comic to look like. But it looks good, and the characters are consistent in their portrayals. They have mm-hmm. real facial expressions. Yeah, yeah. And I'm liking where the story is going, even if I do know the writer. <laughs> <laughs> Who is that writer? Uh, Alex Grecian, Alexander Grecian. He's one of my regulars at the store. Well, Alexander, make sure you uh, come visit us at Majorspoilers.com. Mm-hmm. Uh, I should point out that all the reviews that we're doing tonight really are from our stack of comics that we have not gotten to. So some of them are, or that we are just getting around to, some of them are comics that are coming out this week, such as the ones on Rodrigo's stack. Mine are kind of a mix of uh, independent comics from the last couple of weeks, and, and Matthew, I think, is the same way. So, mm-hmm. Rodrigo, what do you got for us this week? Um, I'll start out with a Ghost Rider Annual Number Two. Okay, is this um, continue on the this, the this Blaze continues. versus Catch storyline? It it they're they're saving that. There's gonna be a big knockdown drag out fight. Cannot wait. That's that's coming up. Um, you know, two Ghost Riders going at it. Yes. Um, not in that way. Or you know, maybe not. <laughs> no, they're brothers apparently. Okay. Um. This uh this issue basically is kind of a stand I mean it, it fits into the storyline, but it kind of stands off by itself. Um Johnny Blaze goes to this town, he's basically going around, he's been going around this whole time time investigating all the all these angel based paranormal things mm-hmm. that have been happening because he's trying to find his way to heaven. Right. He knows he can't just kill himself because he'll go to hell. Right. Um so he's trying to find a way to get into heaven. So he hears reports of this angel and um, gets to this town and realizes that a lot of people come to this town and then commit suicide. Mm-hmm. So he starts investigating that. Um, as it turns out, there is an angel living in this town, and his job isn't. Well, I mean, I guess technically he's a demon. His job was to um, basically let people, or you know, decide where people went in heaven. Mm-hmm. And he, you know, always on his list is like, if you commit suicide, you can't go to heaven. Um, he encounters this man who essentially committed suicide for a for the right reasons. Right. He tries to get him into heaven and gets kicked out. Ah. So then what he does on earth is um, he basically draws suicides to himself. Hmm. You know, the spirits people, are real people. No, real people. Oh, okay. Who man, want to commit suicide. Town. Yeah, it is. Um, and this guy's then named Kevorkian? Basically kills them uh-huh. so that they can go to heaven. Yeah. Uh. Interesting, um, interesting concept. It is a it is a cool concept. Um, so then, at the end, um, him and Blaze get into it, and uh, he tells him he's like, "Well, I can I can fight you, and I'm one of the few people who could probably kill you, but you have to fight, otherwise it's suicide, and you can't go." Right. So they get into a fight, and Blaze wins. Mm. So he ends up killing, which the is angel. what the angel probably wanted in the first place. Probably. Yeah. Interesting. Um, the art is. Okay, there was probably a time in my life where I would have picked up any book that looked like this. Mm-hmm. But um, as I read more and more comic books, I realize that there are certain art styles that don't go well with certain characters or certain themes. Mm-hmm. Um, this one is a lot. It's very. It's kind of cartoony. It's kind of over the top kind of style. Um, and the artist has a knack for like kind of denoting. Uh, you know, blazes hellfireiness by yeah. having one of his eyes glow and kind of trail a little bit of fire, which actually makes him look a lot like X Man. Oh yeah, from 
you know, Age of Apocalypse yeah. kind of stuff, cable yeah. deal, um, which I don't like all that much. Um, the the first artist, and you know, I don't, I didn't even check what his name was, that I saw on this on this arc of Ghost Rider, I think has really nailed both Johnny Blaze and the Ghost Rider. Um, the way that and the Ghost Rider's motorcycle, possibly most importantly. Yeah, this guy, not so much. Okay, so what are you giving this annual? Um, I'll give it. I'll give it two and a half stars because it's a good idea. It's a it's a good premise and it continues the storyline. The art really detracts from it, I feel. And as cool an idea as it is, the story isn't paced all yeah. that well. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Uh, so my title this week comes from Great Big Comics. Well, one of my titles. It's The Voyages of She Buccaneer, book two of three. Yar. This is, yeah, Yar indeed. It's written by Heidi Hughes, illustrated by Will Hughes, and production color by Elizabeth Hughes. And you think I must, they're related? Yeah, well, I know it's Heidi and Will are. They're, they're married. They're married. I don't know where Elizabeth fits in in all of this. Uh, but this <laughs> continues on the adventures of the She Buccaneer from the first one that I reviewed up on the Major Spoilers website, where the She Buccaneer is trying to bring her beloved back from the dead. Mm -hmm. And so she has to go and collect all of these rare jewels, these diamonds from all these far-off places. And this one, they go to Atlantis to try and find the Eye of Atlantis that this crystal skull is telling them that they need to get. And along the way, they, uh, her crew, she and her crew meet a couple of scurvy dogs, a captain from another ship uh, who is returning from Atlantis after most of his crew or all of his crew were killed. And then when they get on Atlantis, they meet uh, this wild, uh, wild man who's kind of a Robinson Crusoe who's been stranded on Atlantis trying to outrun these giant cannibal, giant cannibals, that's what they are. They're these huge cannibal creatures that are killing the men. Uh, of course, Atlantis at this time has long been dead. Uh, of course, they escape from the, from the giants thanks to some Atlantean technology. And in the end, they kind of recover the jewel, but it's taken away by the, by the evil captain that they saved uh, from out in the water. And so... There's one more jewel that they're going after, of course, in this uh, three-issue arc in the Indian Sea, and that takes place next time, The Eye of Kabbalah. Uh, this series, there's some good things about this series. Certainly the writing is very good. Um, I think the character development for a three-issue series is about as good as you can make it. The pacing gets a little choppy because you're trying to tell a huge, massive movie-length story in a single issue. Uh, and that kind of messes things up a little bit, I think. The pacing is really is really quick. The colors are wonderful. The art by Will Hughes is wonderful. If you're an Adam Hughes fan, no relation there, uh, you would probably dig his uh, She Buccaneer and, and uh, some of his characters in here because the first time I read it, I was like, well, this is very Adam Hughes-esque without really going into the uh, – in and making it full-on Adam Hughes. Uh, mm. I just – you know, I have a little – I really like this series. It's three issues. Um, the communication that I've had with the with the writer is, or the I'm sorry, the artist is that yes, everything seems very rushed because they only they didn't know how this these issues were going to sell, and they were committed to the first three. After that, however, uh, the story should spread out a little bit more and uh, do well. So if you like some pirate adventure, if if you like Par Pirates of the Caribbean, then. I guarantee you, you're going to love... The movie or the ride? Yeah, both. Actually, actually, if you like both, and I know there's people who love the ride, I certainly do. The movies, eh. This, the Sheep Buccaneers tales are what the Pirates of the Caribbean movies should have been. 
That's what I'm trying to say. So I think you will really get a kick out of Voyages of the She Buccaneer issues one and two out on your newsstands. Well, probably in your in your back issue bin. And uh, the very nice thing for those of you who are into that kind of thing, they do have a centerfold in each and every issue with uh, Crystal uh, Montalcon. She poses as the She Buccaneer. That's how you sell them. That's that's how you that's how you sell comics, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, so that's my issue, Matthew. Let's get on to the second one. Quickly. Now, what if I'm a Howard Hughes fan? Well, then you probably are keeping your urine in a jar, and you have really long toenails. Who uh, told you? Twenty-four <laughs> minutes remaining. Let's crack some. Hey, hey, some hey! Comics. Let's crank Number this two. up into second gear. Oh wow, Steve's getting pushy. I'm Steve. It's Matthew. Well, I'm sorry, it's Next the Matthew <laughs> show, so I guess we should go with Matthew's face this week. Next up on my stack is issue six, or excuse me, issue five of the Dynamite Comics uh, revival of one of the oldest characters in superheroic fiction, El Zorro. Oh, I love Zorro. This is who is this? Dy- Dynamite. Dynamite. It's Matt Wagner on uh, the story, and a man named Francesco Francavia on the art. Yeah, love this I, art. It, Took me a while to warm up to him, but I'm really starting to dig his art. Wagner has put a whole lot of thought into the backstory and figuring out why Zorro has such tangled antecedents and why a Mexican character in the 1890s would have all these weird ties to piracy and mask heroes of the 17th century. It's really well done. I'm really enjoying it. The first six-issue arc either ended this week or is about to come out and end next week. In either case, I recommend that you look into it. Zorro number five is a solid three stars for me. The first six-issue arc is almost four. It's retelling Zorro's origin, and it's making it very topical, very interesting, very well done. Excellent. Rodrigo, what do you got for number two? What do I got for number two? Uh, um, let's see. Uh, it is certainly not She Buccaneer. It, l- let's see. Runaways? Runaways number one. This is the one that I've been most excited about because of the... Uh, the uh, Humberto Ramos. Ramos art. Humberto Ramos. Right. So Which should I pick this issue up? It's out this week. I, I love his artwork. I love the runaways in the first arc. This has got to be a slam dunk, right? I, I was hoping that it would be. Um, and certain, you know, I, I think you you could pick it up and really enjoy it. Um, there's a couple issues that I have with it, um, with the art specifically. And the first one is that it looks pretty muddy. And I think that's the coloring. I think there's either the coloring or the printing, like the final proof of it. I don't know. Um, But there are just times where you can't really tell what's going on. Times where things kind of seem blurry, Mm -hmm. but it's not that kind of blur effect that they add nowadays. It's just, you know. um, Now, Humberto can uh, draw some pretty attractive ladies. Mm -hmm. He he does a great job because, um, you know, his style is very... um, cartoony well let's say stylized yeah big Um, big eyes big feet but and and a lot of guys who do stuff like that a lot of their characters look very similar but you know the differences between carolina or carolina and uh miko Mm -hmm. and even between the boys are 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 strong i mean you can tell he he probably gives chase way too much of a chin Mm -hmm. as far as i'm concerned because he's supposed to look like a kid right um but this that's another uh, instance where you know the runaways have been drawn by several different artists and every once in a while i look at it and i f- i look at any given artist and i think and i forget that for example um sister grim is supposed to be asian right and i think you know it, even though 
this guy's art is very stylized. You can tell that she's Asian, that she's supposed to be, and there's no, you know, kind of like awful telltale, you know, just like very right, right. squinty eyes kind of right, right, right. things that people do every once in a while. Um, so, I mean, the the art is good. There's just there's just something off about the coloring. Um, as far as the story, uh, the Runaways are back in L.A. They're having fun. Uh, Chase is trying to get a job because he's the only one who can do it legally without his parents because mm. he hits 18 uh, yeah. sometime previously in the story. Um, it doesn't. It doesn't feel to have that same sense of urgency that the first mm. uh, three volumes of it seem to have, and I totally just bailed Love out every, yeah. uh, during the the Whedon era. Oh yeah, so I'm yeah. kind of coming back to it too. Um, I, I'm gonna give this a few more issues. It's not really wowing me like I wish it would, and you know it does come on the heels of that kind of uh, tense. Like, is Zavin going to be a boy from now on? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Stuff. Yeah, that was a big kind of issue that that uh Roberto right. had to write about up on a site. So a star rating? Um I'm going to give it 3 stars cuz it's the runaways, but it could it could definitely go down from there. Okay. A uh, couple of issue or a couple of episodes ago back at uh, episode number 20, we interviewed Mr. Mark Wade and he mentioned he was writing an upcoming issue of Cthulhu Tales. I happen to have that right here, Boom Studios. Nice. Cthulhu Tales number 4 written by Mark Wade and Mark Sable. There's two different stories in this issue. It's kind of an anthology series. Uh Mark Wade's um story is called In the Pie of the Beholder with the mathematical symbol pie. And essentially it's the story of this uh, fair to Midland uh, math guy who really wants to make it big and really discover a mathematical formula that'll make him a superstar. Well, someone gives him, some mysterious stranger gives him a copy of the Necronomicon. And he doesn't understand a lot of the stuff in the back, but or in the front, but in the back are is math, and he understands math, and all of a sudden, overnight, he starts to develop this uh, theory of everything, and then he wakes up the next morning, and everyone that he looks at has Cthulhu's head, mm-hmm. these big, uh, you know, the tentacle face, big octopus head, mm-hmm. and it's freaking him out, and it ends up costing him his job, it ends up costing him so much, he's depressed, he's going everywhere he looks, he's seeing this, he's still working on the formula, and he's going to, he's seeing a shrink, at the same time to try to figure out what's going on. He thinks it's just some disorder, a real life disorder. And that's what I like. Mark's actually gone in and, and put in a, a great uh, reasoning about why he could be seeing this. And finally, at the end of the story, and I won't give it away, the psychi- psychiatrist suggests what might possibly be a reason for him seeing these, these creatures. And the guy freaks out, burns his house down, and then everything's back to normal. Uh, and so that works out really well. The second story is called "There Will Be Blood." Has nothing to do with with the movie of the same of the same title, mm-hmm. uh, but this is one where uh, this uh, I believe he's Iraqi. Uh, he's being essentially waterboarded. Um, he is a, he was a curator of a museum that had a lot of oh, what's his name the um, the guy who wrote the Necronomicon. Oh, the the Arab guy. Yeah, yeah. He's essentially a descendant of that. Oh. Abdul El Azraq. Yeah, exactly. Like. And so he is tasked with keeping the family secret, and he does so in a very graphic and intense way. Let me just put it that way. Nice. Of the two stories, I did like the Mark Wade one much better. The art by Chi uh, for the Pie of the Beholder not so great. I was not a big fan of it. It's kind of a it's kind of looks like a watercolory without much definition. I don't know. It looks like a. I don't, you know, I don't know how you would describe it. It just kind of looks off. Cheese art 
is good, but I can take it or leave it, honestly, yeah. at any given point. Yeah, so I'm going to give this issue, I'll, I'll, pull a, I'll pull a Josh here, I'll give the writing four and a half stars, <laughs> but I'm going to give the art two stars, which makes the overall issue about three and a half stars, but still worth your time to pick up Cthulhu Tales number four. That would actually make it three and a quarter stars. Okay, three and a quarter stars, Matthew. Yeah. Mr. The Matthew Show. Everything's right in Matthew. The Matthew Show. It's Matthew Show. Well, now, returning to the important part. You can start listening again, ladies and gentlemen. I also wanted to touch on... Fast forward, fast forward, fast forward. Madman Atomic Comics number 10. Oh, Madman. You like Madman. You're a big Madman fan. I'm a huge fan fan of Mike Elred. But one of the things that... Ah, there it was. Take Ah, a drink. Curse you, Superman. I'll see you in 30 days. Mr. Matthew Pitalik, 90 days. (laughs) Mike Elred, his first run at Madman and the Atomics was a very bright, very fun, kind of cartoony story. And this Madman Atomic Comics, in its first ten issues, has been very experimental in terms of the narrative, in terms of the way he's drawing and what he's drawing. It's a darker story about a character who's slightly older and more mature. It still has the fun aspects to it, but it's kind of like watching the teenage madman mature into a young adult and have to deal with the realization that everything he knows is wrong. It's Mm -hmm. really, really well drawn, just beautiful to look at, and there's a very strange weirdness going on with uh, his girlfriend, Joe, has actually been merged with another woman who isn't in love with him, but he's still in love with her, and they're kind of the same person, only not. Nice. Yeah. It's kind of like a metaphor for I never really knew her, but I love her anyway. I think, possibly. I don't know. Um, Madman Atomic Comics number 10, not my favorite of the series. Okay. This issue is about a two and a half star. It's it's a good book. It's not bad by any means. There's nothing in this issue that really jumps out and says, hey, read me. I'm fantastic. But it's not just your average read. And the whole run thus far has been really phenomenal. It's really interesting to see Alred stretching his wings and doing different things, intentional artistic stretches, just to prove that he can within the confines of a 22-page comic story. Cool. Rodrigo, number three for you. Number three for me is uh, Marvel Comics Presents number 12. Ooh, okay. Um which is kind of its uh, kind of Marvel's showcase title or one of them yeah. nowadays. Um, it's basically three different ongoing stories. One of them is Blade, one of them is Machine Man, and one of them Woo! is Man-Thing. Which one were Machine you Man! willing to? Oh, okay, Machine Man. The, the Machine, Machine Man story Man. is pretty cool. Now, I'm just dropping onto this right now. I had no idea that this title existed. I saw it in the in the stuff that Marvel sent us, and I was like, okay, let's pick it up. Um Blade was interesting, and I am kind of curious to go back and see it, although they've really merged kind of uh, Blade back into the Marvel Universe, which I could take or leave. I always thought Blade worked out a lot better when he wasn't fighting Spider-Man. Yeah. When he was basically, you know, running around killing vampires. With Jessica Biel. Okay, yes. (laughs) But hey, what doesn't work (laughs) with Jessica Biel? With Jessica Biel. (laughs) Hey, I saw that. I now pronounce you Chuck and Larry. That was... Yeah, that was okay, plus Jessica Biel made it great. There you go. Anyway, um, <laughs> the I'll, I'll skip to the man thing one, because I think it's a continuation <laughs> to um, Dark of Night. Uh, Marvel kind of tried to launch a horror title 
relatively recently, and they started out with meant things origin story. Mm-hmm. I don't, and I don't know. I, I think it follows that continuity because all of a sudden Shield gets involved, mm. and they've never heard of Man Thing before. Yeah, it seems like they're basically hunting him down, like a cryptozoology kind of thing. And the angle of it is actually really good. I mean, it's kind of a standalone issue. In that um, these two shield guys go down and they want to get the man thing to register with the human registration or superhuman oh, yeah, registration yeah. act. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they're like, uh, uh, man thing, uh, Iron Man says you have to register. And the man thing just kind of stares at them, like hands one of them a frog. You know, he's not <laughs> like the man thing's not out to kill anybody. And then the other guy's like, well, I interpret that as a hostile response and zaps him. Oh, so geez. the man thing just like incinerates him. And actually, this, the story. Like a lot of Man Thing stories, Man Thing is actually just a plot device, right? And it's really the story about the people that interact with him, and that's what this one is. So just for that story, this book is worth it. Mm-hmm. Although I have no idea how much it costs. I, I think it's forty pages. Oh, three ninety nine. Yeah, three ninety nine. That's oh, not bad. That's not bad for forty pages. Um, the Machine Man is the closing of an arc in which basically Machine Man has taken this floating city called um, State, State Fifty One. And is now sort of cruising around. He's made this entire city full of mechanical superheroes that just kind of like replay various team ups that he's been in. And um, basically, this one of his enemies has gotten on, has gotten on this uh, on his flying city ship and is now trying to wreck things. And it seems like she's trying to wreck things to make him less crazy. Yeah, because he's basically having a nervous breakdown, and at some point they actually say something that sounds really cool, which is he's trying to stage the nervous breakdown that because he's a machine he can't have. Yeah. Um. So the writing's the writing's pretty cool on it. I have no idea what's actually going on because I haven't been following up to now. But you know, as sitting there reading through it, I was like, okay, that's cool. I, yeah, so these are not self-contained stories. These continue are, on they, each, these are each continuing week or each stories. Week. Okay, cool. A star rating. I would give it. I would give it four stars, just because between all three stories, there's bound to be something you like in there. High praise from Rodrigo. Uh, my third one this week is from Moonstar Moonstone Books. It's Buckaroo Banzai, the prequel, issue number <gasps> one. Now, I don't know if I mentioned this in that big booty, your big booty. Uh, I think we must have mentioned that as one of my favorite movies mm-hmm. of all time in the in the movie episode. Love, love, love the Buckaroo Banzai, and when they had the uh, Return of the Screw. Uh, series that came out in, what, like two or three years ago. 2003. It, yeah, so it was a couple of years ago. Five years, wow. Wow. Or Why maybe have, five. I'm going to say time certainly flies. But that one was kind of a follow-up to Across the Eighth Dimension because it featured uh, John Big Boutet and, and everybody else in there, uh, the black and red electroids. The prequel story is actually telling stories before Across the Eighth Dimension movie starts out. And this one kind of tells the story, and some of you may have seen um, Bubba Hotep. Mm -hmm. Have you guys seen that movie? Yeah. It is an awesome movie, and it's the tale of Elvis was so popular, he wanted some alone time, so he found a guy that was a dead-on ringer for him. They swapped places. Uh, Elvis could go out and have a fun time, but before he could go and... Uh, get back into the position, his double died. Mm-hmm. Well, that's kind of what's going on with Buckaroo Banzai. He's trying to create his uh, interdimensional uh, device, mm-hmm. and he's so booked up with all these gigs that he finds somebody that's a dead ringer for him. And in this first issue, he's going through, and, and everything's going fine until this guy gets all all fat 
and full of himself <laughs> on on popularity, and people are concerned. And so then they're going to do the big swap, and uh, I, I forget what else happens. They they go to China to uh, to test an interdimensional device, and they're and Penny Pretty is in there, and 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 they get attacked by. Uh, um, by some of who is it Zan's uh, bad guys. It's it's kind of a global spanning story. Mm-hmm. It also tells how did Buckaroo become a rock star, and when you have Buckaroo Bonsai across the eighth dimension, when you have a um a, a, a sequel follow up comic book, mm-hmm. there's not a lot of continuity, mm-hmm. right? So you'd think it would be fairly easy to keep track of what's going on to Buckaroo Bonsai. And the biggest problem with Buckaroo Banzai, the prequel, is there's this huge gaffe. In the movie, it says right in the opening credits that Buckaroo Banzai's parents were killed in an experiment, mm-hmm. right? Testing this interdimensional device. Well, in this, it's only Buckaroo's father who's dead, and his mother is still around well until he graduates from college with his PhD. Hmm. So to me, that is a huge continuity error, which kind of took me out of this entire story. Otherwise, if you're a Buckaroo Banzai fan, you might want to pick this up. The art, eh, so-so, uh, is what I want to say. Uh, it does have all your favorite characters in it. Uh, but I'm going to give it a three out of five stars. Two, uh, let me, I'll revise that. Two and a half. Mm-hmm. Two oh. and a half. It's good, but not that good. If you gonna... like it, Matthew, you need to go and pick it up. It came out last week. I need to go check it out because I'm a huge fan of Buckaroo, and I want to know what that watermelon is doing there. Uh, the watermelon is on the cover, so even more go. questions. Uh, real quickly, Matthew, I'm going to review Trinity. Trinity! 10, 10 11, and 12 okay. in 30 seconds or less. Trinity, go. 10, or 11, or 12. Uh, overall, people, when this series was first announced, everyone thought it was going to be a Batman, Superman, Wonder Woman story, and that was it. I love what uh, Busick is doing, bringing in everybody slowly and really addressing what does this Trinity mean, and they're developing a well, uh, big story arc. They're in another, uh, in the uh, crime syndicate uh, earth in this issue, in uh, issue 12. Um, the, the series grows on me week after week. It's not a super series, but it's a good series, earning a three and a half out of five stars. Nice. Cool. Can you do something like that, Matthew? I bet you I can. In fact, I can do that one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight times if you'd like. Well, how about you do it two times? Two? Oh, man. What am I going to do with the rest of the stuff in my review pile? Well, you write can, reviews. Write a review. <laughs> you suck. <laughs> <laughs> well, we must because it's the Matthew Show. Matthew, the Matthew Show. show. Yeah. I'm going to keep talking because that's what I do. Hey. All right. Three. House two, of Mystery one, number oh. three from House Vertigo Comics. Stop Matthew. talking while I'm talking. All right. All right. Matthew Sturgis. <laughs> House of Mystery, number three from Vertigo Comics. Matthew Sturgis, Bill Willingham, Luca Rossi, and Zachary Baldus. I really enjoy this series. I think the art is absolutely beautiful. The main character, really attractive. I have no idea what's going on, but I'm interested to find out. And the little story within a story plot device is really excellent. This month's story is a little creepy and a little bloody, which is nice. I like that in a story every once in a while. But my main question is exactly, you know... What's going on here? Have we built a Gilligan's Island premise to where if we ever find out what the house is really about, does the book end? Um, Ignoring that portion of it, I'd have to say it's probably a a three-and-a-half star effort. It's a very good issue. I like it. The one thing that I would have to say is I'd like to know 
If nothing else, just a little bit more about what's going on. Okay. Okay. Next. Dynamite Comics, The Boys, number 21. Oh, this yeah. is going to set me off on a short rant, and Go I want to start it. Go ahead. Okay. This is the story of, first of all, why there's no Brooklyn Bridge anymore in this universe. And basically, it takes place on the morning of September 11th, 2001. It gives me the creeps saying that. It gave me the creeps reading it. But the military has identified a plane coming in towards New York, and they've sent up their Justice League analogs, the Seven, to try and stop it. And the Seven find out that no matter how powerful they are, they ain't strong enough to stop a jet airliner at full speed. Hmm. And there's a moment where they rip open the door of the airliner, and uh, a kid, looks to be about an eight-year-old boy, is sucked out into the draft. Jeez. Remember that, because I'll come back to it. Okay. And the whole story just turns into an endless cluster schmoz, where these seven characters end up freaking out so badly that they don't know what they're doing, that they, pretty much, they kill everybody on the plane. Wow. By d the direct actions that they take, kill everyone on the plane. And at the end of the story, the United States government puts together a cover-up claiming that the Seven couldn't get there in time to save any lives. So by interfering with the plane and killing everyone on board, it crashed into the Brooklyn Bridge? It crashed into okay. the Brooklyn Bridge, destroying the bridge and killing like 250 people. Okay. So here's the thing. This is a flashback told well, by not, a character that's, called that's the Legend. That's not one of the Matthew Pitalik things, is it? Right. That's not one of the things. Okay. Don't take it. You don't have to take a drink. <laughs> This is a good issue up to a point. It's atypical of the boys. It's a bloody story. It's a weird story. It's a terrible story. I would actually have to give it three stars because it's really? well drawn. It's mm -hmm. well written. But this is my current complaint. This is the third or fourth comic that I've seen in recent weeks where a child, specifically the boy getting sucked out of the plane, a child is put in danger or killed on panel intentionally to make us see how terrible a situation is. Yeah, but this is. doesn't have the comics code approval sticker on the cover, so it doesn't matter. It does, it does not. But here's my complaint. I don't want to see a child injured in any situation, much less just to prove a point about how bad a supervillain is or how badly a, a fake superhero screwed up. The solicitation yeah, doesn't that make it a lot more? Doesn't that make it a lot more um, intense then? When all of a sudden, oh my god, this kid is involved, and suddenly the story no. becomes that more impactful. It pulls me out. It makes me feel the writer's fingerprints on the story going, okay. hey, if I, kill, if I kill a kid here, it'll make you really care. Ah. It doesn't. It makes me annoyed at the creators. I mean, it's like shorthand for evil. Let's kill a kid or let's mm -hmm. injure a kid. Somebody – there was a recent issue and I can't remember what it is. Somebody shot a child on panel just to show what a terrible person they were. Hmm. And it's just it, – it's getting to the point where it's become comic book shorthand for evil – yeah, it's kind of like the the modern analog of death of the sidekick kind of thing. Like, yeah. No. Okay. At now I got to redouble my efforts. Blah blah blah. Yeah. At least when Robin died, it was just the bloody crowbar that you saw. Right. Mm. Have you seen the solicitations for Crossed from Avatar Comics? No, I have not. One of the solicitation images is somebody dragging a child to an open airplane door to be thrown out. Apparently, the Crossed are a group of people who are, are crazy and have no inhibitions and do whatever horrible evil thing they think of. Mm. It's another example of, hey, let's show how you know, let's show how serious or how awful this is. And it just it it pisses me off. I don't need to see that. And it doesn't make me think, oh what a terrible thing. It makes me think, oh what a terrible plot device. And why couldn't they come up with something that wasn't so heavy handed to make me try and care about lines on paper? 
Mm-hmm. It, 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 it's kind of the way I felt about Civil War when they kept in uh, Civil War, the uh, front line, when they kept making parallels between Spider-Man and Captain America having a fist fight in the comic book in the Vietnam War. Ah, okay. Well the, well, the parallel is this. There ain't no parallel. And by trying to be, you know, highfalutin or trying to go to that level, you've just made me care a little less about Spider-Man and Captain America, which is the exact opposite of what they're trying to do. Same goes here. With a child being killed in the narrative, it makes me care less because it makes it, it, it makes me aware that, oh, yeah, this is being crafted by somebody who's trying to out-preacher preacher. Mm-hmm. So I did not like this issue as much as recent ones. Still not a bad book. Still a rant that I needed to go off on for about 30 seconds and make us go long on the podcast. So No, that's all right. One more quick one for me. It's the new uh, story arc uh, from uh, Hack Slash, Tim Seeley's uh, Casey, Casey uh, Hack storyline. She and her, her big friend go out and... Uh, find slashers wherever they may be across the United States. Uh, this one from Devil's Due Publishing just came out last week. What's great about it is it's the crossover I did not expect. Casey Hack not only gets to meet her father at the end of the issue, she's also going to meet H.P. Lovecraft's, Lovecraft's Herbert West, the reanimator. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah, it's a, a pretty graphic story, as is all... Uh, hack slash stories, which makes me wonder why young girls are so into uh, into hack slash, but uh, whatever. Uh, uh, are they? Should I should I start picking that up? <laughs> actually, apparently they are. From everything that I've heard, is that the you know the goth girl set are really into to Casey Hack, uh, Good and it's know. soon to be a major motion picture. Casey nice. Hack. Um, it, you know, there's enough gore and violence and enough fun in this issue that I'm gonna give it a I'm gonna give it a three three out of five. Cool. And that's the first the first uh, part of a three part story arc. Very you cool. You don't you don't feel that it detracts from the Lovecraft uh, estate? Well, you know, when they say reanimator, and you look at the uh, at the cover, this is uh, what's his name? Um, who Jeffrey is, Coombs. Jeffrey Coombs, who played the question on Justice League uh, and yeah. played the uh, blue alien from Enterprise. Uh, you know, it's not really a true Lovecraftian, oh, I so I can forgive that. So He there was you... also on Deep Space Nine forever, thank you very much. Oh, was he on that one? Yeah. Okay, well, cool. So there you go, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for downloading and listening. You've just heard a buttload of reviews, and what I'm most proud about <laughs> is that, well, maybe my butt, and Math, not Matthew's butt, uh, but I'm really pleased that we looked at a lot of independent comics mm-hmm. this time, not a whole lot of mainstream stuff for you, except for Rodrigo, who's a big Marvel fan. And uh, I didn't get a chance to go out to the comic shop, so I just got what Marvel sent me. There you go. All right. uh, Anything else before we go, Matthew? Since it's the Matthew Show. The Matthew Matthew Show. Show. Hey, I'd just like to point out that anyone who can tell me where the Kevin Smith joke will get my uh, eternal gratefulness and a bronze block award. (laughs) What Kevin Smith joke? The Kevin Smith joke I made that you didn't get. Oh, okay. Must not have been that good. Uh-huh. I, I, I sure didn't get it. Hey, everybody. Don't forget, tell your friends about the show. Be sure to visit us on the website at Majorspoilers.com. We really appreciate all the fantastic feedback everyone's been leaving us up on iTunes or sending us in the emails. And speaking of emails, if you have any questions, comments, suggestions, whatever, all you have to do is drop us that email at podcast at Majorspoilers.com, and one of us will get back with you very soon. Next week, we're going to go back to the regular format. We've actually got a trade to review. We're going to uh, review the first volume of Hellboy. Heckboy. Heckboy, I'm sorry. Heckboy, the family. Family <laughs> ordered. It's a family show, damn family it. Family show, damn it. 
Uh, so don't forget to do that. Also, we've got that MySpace page, myspace.com slash major spoilers, because we know you love MySpace, and you know we know you love comics, and we do too, and we will check you out next time. Stop talking about comic books or I'll kill you. I don't care if the Hulk could defeat the Man of Steel. I'm gonna rearrange your face if you continue to debate whether Logan's claws could pierce Steve Rogers' shield. I just couldn't care if they bring back Craven. You just said, you know that we know that you know that we know you love comics. Of course we know that you know that we know that you love comics, and we do too. But but I didn't know that. (laughs) I only knew that you knew that you knew.